today, and if there was ever a day that I actually needed 40 minutes to preach this, it's today. So, um, you might be wondering why we're having a baptism today, and here's why. Um, we believe that baptism should happen soon after conversion, and scripture almost always happens immediately. Um, we believe it should be initiation right of the church, because when you accept Christ, you are in the church. You don't have any say about that. If you accepted Jesus, you're in the church, and that means a local church. You can't just be part of the universal church and not care about the local church. Yeah, the local church stinks sometimes, but that's just reality. God decided to save people. That's his fault, you know? And, um, and third is I have a personal conviction that if, if you're obedient to God in such a way that God uses you as an instrument to lead somebody else to faith, you should get to be there for their baptism. And in God's providence... Um, uh, the Poppy family, and particularly Amanda, had, um, was used by God to lead, um, to lead, um, Rich, Rich? Did I, am I getting this wrong? Sorry, dude. I'm, I'm, my bad. Um, Mr. Bria to faith, and, uh, and she's about to go to Turkey for either one year or two years to teach. So she's not going to be around. So we're doing it today, because she ought to get to see some of this. She helped lead a faith give I just think that, I just can't let that go. So anyway, that's why we're doing it today. So, now... What that means is, now what that means is in like 23 minutes, I need to say like 58 minutes worth of stuff. And, and to make matters worse, and I know this probably shouldn't sound this way, but to make matters worse, um, the Lord really kind of got after me about this. And so you would think having a sort of a spiritual experience with your sermon should make it easier to preach. That's not really always true. Because, anyway, so if this is a little, just, just go with me, okay? Um, as the pastor of a church, I'm responsible for both shepherding pe people on an individual level. So when I preach, I'm trying to speak into your life personally, right? But, but also, there's another aspect in which we are always a community together. So I'm, I'm also preaching to the church. You see, you see what I'm saying? And I have to do both of those things. And so every once in a while... You know, you'll get one of these vision sermons, right? That it's not really designed for Thursday for you. You know, it's, it's designed to talk about how we're being the church together. And, you know, you just, you got to do these things. Or the church forget, we forget what our values are together. We forget where we're going together. And so, I was kind of feeling like it's not time for a vision sermon. But what I want to do, I want to drill down into one of the values that I think are critically important. I think that... I think that we've got some good orthodox values in place that everybody knows, like we believe in Jesus, we believe in the gospel, we believe in the Bible, right? Those evangelical orthodox, I think those are pretty solid and secure here at High Point Church. I think that's great. I think secondly, because we've been a Will Creek Association church for years, I think some other operational values like excellence um, and, 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 um, and collegiality and, and so on, the priesthood of all believers are also there. And I think that, but I think that there are three values that really are the guts and the difference between a church that's really spiritually prevailing, um, a, a church to which the non-Christian culture around grand, gives you the high ground morally. They say, no, that really is a beautiful community. Um, and I think that those three values are hospitality, community, and sacrifice. I think they are the true attitude of being an open community welcoming strangers and enemies community that we are not just friendly, but we are friends. And by friend, I don't mean somebody who's in your cell phone. I mean somebody you can count on. Somebody who's bound to you in friendship and in love, to quote Tolkien, as I often do too much. And then lastly, sacrifice. 
that we have, we have fallen dramatically out of love with our own, com- our own comfort and consumer mentality towards ourselves and our vision is towards God and the gospel and through that towards others rather than mainly resting upon ourselves. I think if those three values really make it into our hearts, then we will be dramatically different human beings and dramatically, a dramatically different community. So this morning, I want to drill down a little bit into hospitality. Um, hospitality essentially means to be a truly open community. Um, I said at a bunch of the connection meetings that most emotionally healthy people have a certain number of people that they want or psychologically desire in their group. The people who are in their life. And so for some radically crazy introverts, it might only be three people, right? They've got a spouse, they've got a couple of friends, that about does them, you know? And they're just introverted, they don't need a lot of people. Other people who are very extroverted, you know, they may have a circle of 50. But what tends to happen is you accumulate to your max and then you're done. So most emotionally healthy people don't need new relationships. See, that's, that's one of the things that's kind of a, a sticking point to hospitality. You, you need 12 or 13 friends. If you're emotionally healthy, you're going to find 12 or 13 friends. You're going to have people in those slots. You're going to be in their slots, and you're going to have a full circle. And so when a stranger shows up, it's not that you're, inten- you're intentionally wanting to be mean and exclude them. It's just your dance card is full. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't have room in your life and schedule, in your heart for another person. The shape of your heart is complete. And um, so generally speaking, then, we have to make peace with the idea that hospitality is en- essentially being good at entertaining people. And that's generally how we use the word. Right? You know, well, well, she's great at hospitality, which means she makes amazing guacamole. That's what that means, right? But, and, you know, when you go to the Bible, you, you begin to see that there are definitely passages on this. And you, and you probably are aware of them. You've read them. So, for example, oh, wait, I have, I have a PowerPoint to show here. So, for example, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over a lot in this sermon. The whole manuscript is at my blog, which is that. So, if you, so you don't need to write anything down. It's all right there, and so, so don't freak out. Okay, so for example, in Leviticus 19, 18, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We're going to come back to that one. Explicitly using the word hospitality, 1 Peter 4, 9 says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling, which I, I love that. It sort of assumes that you could grumble if you were instructed to offer hospitality to people. Romans 12, 13, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. In the pastoral epistles, there's three lists of what an exemplary Christian looks like. Elders, deacons, and this other group that's called in 1 Timothy the list of widows, which I can't go into what that is right now. Each of them has a list of, these are sort of exemplary traits of somebody you want in leadership. People are supposed to be promoted in Christian leadership, not by gifting, but by character. And within that character, in all three places, guess what gets mentioned? Hospitality. You cannot be an elder. You cannot be a deacon. You cannot be, you cannot be a widow that does full-time ministry for the church without having a reputation for hospitality, right? And that does not mean that elders have to be able to make good guacamole. What it means is that elders and deacons and, and, and people who live exemplary Christian faith are people who welcome strangers, now, in case you want to dispute my de- definition, 
I'm going to argue this basically from the word itself. Um, the, the word hospitality from Latin means to welcome strangers. It's built with those words. The Greek word used in these passages is phylloxenos. Do you remember the movie um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Does anybody, had anybody watched that? Okay. So in that, the older, the dad in the family, every time the boyfriend comes over or some, he, he always yells, xenos, xenos, right? And you're just like, okay, so the old guy's yelling Greek. But the, the word xenos means foreigner, which to him meant not a Greek, not like us. There's a foreigner dating my daughter. This is insane, right? And the, so the Greek word xenos means that. It means stranger, foreigner, somebody on the outside, not part of the community, different from you, somebody you probably don't like. And the word phileo or philo in Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, right? It means love. So loving the stranger. That's what the word means. Now, Most of us know of the command in Leviticus 19. You might not have known the reference, but most people have heard, love your neighbor as yourself. Who had heard, who knew that that was in the Bible when they walked in this morning? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, most everybody. Now, one of the, one of the scriptures that comes in the same chapter that most people are not aware of is this one. So Leviticus 19.18 is love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.32-34 says this. Rise in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly, and revere your God, which probably could get a sermon all in itself. I am the Lord. Verse 33. When an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself. For you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Right? Now, by the time I got to that passage this week, I was about done writing my cheeky sermon on hospitality. Because the goal of my cheeky sermon on hospitality, which you'll get next week, is to get you to welcome people when they come here. Okay, that's the goal. Okay, I'm the pastor. I want, we need a hospitable church. I need to somehow motivate you and me to welcome people when they come to this church. Not just be nice to them, but to include them, not just in your ABF or in your pew, but in your life. Okay? As, as a pastor, this is, as an organizational leader, I, I, that's what I'm after, right? So I'm writing a cheeky little sermon about that, right? That's what we do during the week, we pastors. And so... And so I'm writing this sermon, and I went home for lunch, and I'm sitting outside on this like little little back patio thing we've got, in this free chair I got out of the dumpster that's really comfortable. <laughs> and so I'm writing this sermon after after I had my lunch, and I'm I'm thinking about how to make hospitality memorable for you, right? And I just finished writing this this um this sentence. Which I'll, I'll make much of next week. In order for us to love people on the margins, our lives have to have margin in them. Right? That's pretty cheeky, right? That's good. I stole that from Andy Stanley. Um, <laughs> right? If we're going to love people out on the margins, the stranger, the alien, people different from us, um, which is what hospitality is, we're going to have to have margin. So you can probably figure what the application is next week so you don't have to come, but do send your tithe check. Um, <laughs> <laughs> should blow your whistle. <laughs> um, now, I had just finished writing that sentence on my little legal pad, and my phone rings, okay? 
And, then, and so, you know, I have caller ID, and it says John Gladstone. Now, there's no reason that you would know who that is. John Gladstone is a friend of mine. He's Indian. He lives in India. He's not American at all. He, he's about this tall. He's 63. He's been a missionary in India all of his adult life. He goes back to the George Vera days of Operation Mobilization, for those of you who know something about missions. And, um, I mean, these are guys who, like, scrape money together. They're like, how can we get the gospel to North India? And somebody's like, let's just buy a boat that's almost sinking that somebody will sell really cheap and, like, stick corks in it and, like, fill it with Bibles and sail. You know? And they're like, and somebody goes, that's brilliant. I mean, these are, this is 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 that kind of missionary, okay? And so, um, John is in Mumbai, the second most populous city in the world, and the third, I guess now. And um, in Mumbai, there's 28 million people. There's 14 million just in the slums. Okay, 14 million, okay? So you can imagine how there are thousands of children just, that are just garbage. They're just garbage, right? And so since about 82, they have been um, running children's homes and trying to plant churches in the slums. Training missionaries, planting in the slums. That's what he does for a living. And, um, and I am the vice president of his board. Okay, and so we've seen um, them. They built a boys' home, and now they're we're, we're almost done with a new girls' home. We can take in like fifty or sixty more girls, and it's it's kind of exciting. We're, so he calls. So, but here's the thing: he's Indian, right? So what is the minimum conversation length if you answer the phone? Right, forty-five minutes probably. Yeah, half at least a half an hour. Okay, he's he's, he's just gonna he's gonna ask me about my wife and kids. He's he's not, he's not from Denmark. Okay, he's not gonna he's not gonna say, "Is this Nick?" Yes, we have something to accomplish together. Yes, we. I mean, it's a, he's not from a cold culture. He's not from a task-oriented culture. He's from a people. You, you you work on the relationship, then you do the business in five minutes. That's how it works. Okay, and so, um, so I go, oh, and here's, and I don't have margin for this. Okay? Right? But I just wrote the sentence. In order to love people on the margins of our lives, we have to have margin in our lives. I just wrote it! You know? So, I, you know, I had to answer the phone. So I, so I answered the phone. Hey, John! You know? And we start talking. So he asked about my kids and my wife and my ministry. And how's it going, Wisconsin? Great. Fantastic. We talk about um, his nephew who's studying theology at the seminary and the girls' home and how close it is and blah, all that kind of stuff. And then we talked about a few other things. And then, and then, very unexpectedly, the conversation took a turn. And he said, he said, Brother Nick, I am, I am thinking that this, this fall, I'm, I'm going to go to Orissa to try to help the Christians there. And he, he started talking about um, his nephew, Cyril, who's, who's being trained right now to take the ministry over when he, re- when he retires, dies or retires. Um, He's going to a seminary in Navi, Mumbai, which is like North New Mumbai, and there's an, there are some other students there from the province of Orissa, which um, that might not mean anything to you, but in 2008, August of 2008, um, a mob of, nobody really knows how many, of people showed up at the orphanage in Orissa run by a, um, a Hindu swami who was 85 years old, um, very aged, but also quite renowned. He was sort of like a Mother Teresa figure for the East Indian Hindus. And um, he and five of his followers and a reporter were just butchered in the most brutal fashion. Um, they gut shot him with an AK-47 um, they hacked him with machete. It was just, I mean, I could go on. It was horrifying. Um, 
Now, if, you've, if you know anything about what's, going on, what's been going on in Nepal and so on, um, Maoism is kind of on the rise, um, particularly among some of the Dalit or lower classes. And it, it has really infiltrated um, Nepal, in fact, in fact, I believe Archie, one of Archie McKinney's kids was a doctor there and had to leave for a while because it was so bad, and it, this was all Maoist stuff. And so, um, what, had, what had happened is that um, the Maoists had done this. Um, but see, if you're in, see, in America, we have this history with communism and fascism and so on in relationship to World War II. Most people over the age of about 35 think of communism as the, as the antithesis to Christianity, right? You had the communist Russia, and you had sort of like the Judeo-Christian Western democratic nation, and they, you could hardly be—they were the opposites, right? We're just trying not to blow each other up with nuclear weapons, right? And so our mentality is, generally speaking, and I think rightly, there is virtually nothing more opposed to the gospel than communism, or Marxism specifically. There's some ideas that are helpful, but as a whole— Nothing more opposed. Um, see, but if you're Indian, they're both Western ideas. They're both Western invasive species that are pulling people away from the heart understanding of the motherland and destroying them with the infection of Western thought. There's hardly any difference between them. Particularly if you live out in the country in the middle of nowhere in Arisa, which is where this stuff is happening. And so... To them, uh, Maoists try to convert people and Christians try to convert people. It's the same group. And so very soon after this murder took place, um, a fairly well-known Swami, speaking to what looked like a, a few thousand people in that area, um, said, he didn't say the Maoists killed, he said the Christians killed this Swami. And he quoted as his proof text for the behavior of the Christians, he says, their own Christian holy scriptures say in Luke 19, 27, but those enemies of mine who don't want me to rule over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Right? Now, if, if you know your New Testament, what you know is, is that's, that comes from a parable about the final judgment of King Jesus. And it's a parable about Jesus being made king. It has nothing to do with the action of Christians. And if you read what Jesus commands Christians to do, he commands, people, commands us absolutely to do the opposite, right? But I mean, if, if you never even went to school, and you got that, read, I mean, read out of some holy book, I mean, that's inf I mean Christians are going to come kill us, right? So what happened was, it really fomented an enormous amount of violence. Um, some, Hindu, some Hindu fanatics got together, some other, um, probably on some level, people who thought they were doing the right thing. You know how these things go in terms of extremism? And they just started destroying everything. Killing Christians, destroying churches, burning any Christian literature they could find. Um, if you look at that one up here, the, the, the orange flag he's putting up is the orange flag of Hinduism. And so they've just, they've taken, they, they took back this church. They burned many churches, destroyed vehicles. Um, this girl in the bottom corner was burned to death inside an orphanage. There were a number of people like that. This other, a lot of people not killed but injured, like this girl here whose face was burned in a fire. And um, by, in a couple months, the death toll was already up around 100 of confirmed, we have pictures of bodies kind of people. Um, thousands of people displaced, 10,000 in camps, and then reports started coming in that some of these folks were somehow getting in and poisoning the water sources in the refugee camps where there's only one water source. 
Um, there they were estimates by some of the human rights foundations that as many as 50,000 people were displaced. We got word, and I was in India in, no, in November, and we got word that one of the guys from our seminary had gone home, and he had just gathered in, within a few acres of his house in the jungle, 26 children he just found. They had just run into the jungle. No parents, no one to take care of them. They had just been told to run. And so this has been going on for some time. Um, so, I mean, put yourself in my shoes for like a minute. Right? I'm sitting on my patio with my husky having a nice glass of lemonade, trying to figure out how to come up with a cheeky sentence to convince you to actually speak to visitors. Okay? And I get a call from a friend in India who already lives in the slums, who's 63, not near five foot tall, trying to figure out how he can get himself killed in a province he's never been to among people he's never met. And, um... It, it, it just pushed me a little harder to say, what does this book really teach about this? And I started to become a little terrified by what I was about to find. Um, and, and what I found was that I was not near terrified enough. And I went back to the gospel to the places where Jesus talked about this, that statement from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. It's two fairly famous passages where he interprets that passage. The first is um, what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, I'm trying to figure out when I'm supposed to be done. Okay. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And This guy comes up to him who's an expert in the law, and he says, what do I need to do to be saved, right? That's what he wants to do. And Jesus says, what does the law say, right? What does God's revelation say? He said, well, um, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you're right, that's right. That is a, that is a proper summary of everything. Um, do that, and you'll live. And, the, and, and then it says this, it says, but the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked, who is my neighbor, right? And so Jesus tells us the story of the Good Samaritan, right? So there's this guy, he's going to another town, he gets beat up. Two guys walk by him, don't do anything. One guy who's like a hated foreigner actually takes care of him, and Jesus says, who was a neighbor to the man, right? And the guy says, well, I guess the one who took care of him, right? And he said, well, go and do likewise. Now think about how annoying that is. <laughs> Jesus takes the verse totally out of context, gives it a completely new meaning, expands what it means dramatically, and then essentially does the opposite of what the person came for. I mean, the person came to find out what he had to do to be saved. He came out to find what his religious duty was so that if he just did it, he would be saved. Just give me a plain answer. Would you just give me a plain answer? And Jesus basically says... Yeah, just be loving towards the whole world. Seriously? Like, 
I mean, if, if, if you came and what you were interested in was, how can I be saved, right? How can I not go to hell? How can I be saved? How can I be right with God? How can I live life? And the answer is, just go love everybody in the world. I mean, it's a little bit like Jesus saying, you're not going to be, buddy. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to be saved. You're not going to be right with God because... This is what it means to love your neighbor, and that's the summary of the law, and that's what you have to do to be saved, and good luck. But, you you see, the thing is, is that Jesus didn't misinterpret the verse, did he? You see, when somebody—when the guy says, I think love your neighbor as yourself is is a true summary of the whole law— And Jesus says, yeah, I think that's right. You see, then it gets a little dicey. What piece of logic in love your neighbor as yourself is the summary of the law? You see? You see, because our fallen condition is looking to self-justify and is looking to limit the scope of our duties. And so the minute Jesus says, love your neighbors yourself, that's, that's it. That, it's right there. We go, ooh, I like that category neighbor, right? I like that category neighbor. Because if that word means anything, it means proximity, right? That's what it means. So the minute Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's the summary of the whole law. That means the whole of my duty is to love the people in proximity to me. I like that. Now that's good, Jesus. Right? And so you see, what Jesus is doing is, whoa, 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 buddy. You see, and so the guy didn't say that, but that's what the question meant. Who's my neighbor? How narrow is this circle? This could be good. Right? And Jesus said, no, no, you got got this wrong. You see, the, the, the logic that I'm after in that sentence is that you treat another person just like you would treat yourself. That you would love another as deeply as you would naturally just love you. And if you did that, you'd, be, you'd naturally fulfill the whole law. You see, you got this totally wrong. See, if anybody thinks that Jesus wasn't a good philosopher, you're just wrong. He can slice propositions as good as anybody. He just likes to do it with stories. So he's just more interesting than most philosophers. <laughs> But where it leaves you is, what the heck am I supposed to do? I mean, it's even worse for us. I mean, at least in those days, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have airplanes, they didn't have... I mean, reasonability would somehow limit your scope. We live in a global world. We can help anybody. I mean, everybody's our neighbor. And Jesus goes, go and do likewise. Right? And that's the, that's the nice passage. That's the passage that lets you off easy. You f- flip over to Matthew 5, and it's ten times worse. Um, where Jesus, this is the passage I read this morning where he said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? Now Jesus had to say, you've heard it said, because, and he couldn't say it is written, because that isn't written anywhere, is it? We see again, we've got a theological logic problem, right? If God says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? And we do a little antinomial parallelism, 
right? What's the opposite of that then? If this is the, a- the affirmation, what's the opposite of that? Well, the opposite is clearly that you can hate your enemy, right? It's pretty straightforward. So, and now, this is not found in any of the rabbinic literature. This is a saying that got popular, kind of like um, 66% of evangelicals think God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. Do you know that? 66% of evangelicals actually think that's in the Bible. Yeah, it's the opposite of the teaching of the whole Bible, but they think it's in there. So we, well, I should say we, we think it's in there. And so it's just kind of popular. And Jesus says, you know, you guys have heard this saying about like the most important commandment in the whole scriptures besides love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's like, that's totally wrong. It's totally wrong. It says a few verses later, love the alien as yourself. Right? He says, listen, listen, what I want to, listen what I want to tell you. You just start with your neighbor, the guy who's like you. But you get to your enemies, you need to love your enemies. Right? Now, now okay, in polite conversation, most of us will say we love our enemies. Right? Most of us have somebody on our street we can't stand, okay? I mean, that's reality. I mean, you read this stuff and you go, be a neighbor to everybody. Love your enemy as your— I mean, that's insane. I mean, do you know anybody who's like that? Do you know anybody who really does that? All the churches in this county, could could we find four people who that's really true about? Right? And if what you're after is figuring out how you can fulfill that command and get saved, you're in a lot of trouble, right? A lot of trouble. And see, let me end it this way. That's the whole point. It's the whole point. You are not going to ever be able to check this one off your list. It's not going to happen. And you are never going to be able to accumulate love towards strangers, neighbors, exiles, aliens, and enemies. So that you're like, there it is. And so what on earth is supposed to motivate us sufficiently to essentially die and do this. I mean, this is, this is an invitation to reckless self-abandonment. I mean, this is an invitation to lose your security, your money, your time, your privacy, your leisure. I mean, this is, this is an invitation to destroy your life. That's what this is. And you are just never going to do that. She's never going to do that to fulfill some kind of duty or to, it's never going to happen. Ever. There's no way. I cannot do this. But there's, there's one thing that comes up again and again on here. And, and one of the things that's interesting is in all of these commandments, there is no explicit threat. And that's not to say that God doesn't punish sin because all sin is a lack of love. 
All sin is a lack of love. So he will, all, all sin that God ever will punish will be a lack of love. So it's not that God doesn't punish a lack of love, right? So, so what's happening? It's, that, that's, you, it's never going to motivate you, right? It's not going to get you there. Threats aren't going to get you there. Look at some of these passages and see if you can find the logic with me. Exodus 22, 21 to 22. Do not mistreat an alien for or oppress him for you were aliens in Egypt. 23.9. Do not oppress the alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens because you were aliens in Egypt. Leviticus 19.34. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Romans 5, 6. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Now think about this. Think about the Matthew passage. Where's that? Let's go back to it. Look at, look at, look at the logic of this passage. Look what it's actually saying. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why should we do that? What is supposed to motivate us to do that thing which will kill our lives as we have put them together? He says, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I mean, I think of that. You see, we, are, we, we have a very hard time not thinking of the sun metaphor in relationship to kids. Therefore, we have a really time, hard time not thinking of the sun metaphor in terms of rights. So it would be very easy to read that passage and go, oh, we'll be sons of God, therefore we'll be heirs of salvation and all the good stuff that comes with that, like heaven. It's not what this means. The sun metaphor is primarily an example of likeness. Jesus is the Son, right? Not because God created him. The Son existed in eternity past. He is the Son in that he is the exact representation of the Father in character, personality, teaching, love, everything. And what this passage is saying is that if you and I would actually love our enemies, the insane thing that would happen is we would be sons of God. You would be like God in this little way. You would resemble the Father in his greatest perfection. In, his, in his, one of his greatest glories, you would resemble that a little bit. And what I realized was that my fear that Jesus was going to ruin my life with this thing on hospitality, was, I was not near scared enough because what, I, what he's saying is not just, unless I'm going to wreck your life, what he's saying is, if your life isn't already wrecked, that's just evidence that you don't, you've forgotten what you are. It's just evidence that you don't, we, we don't believe the gospel really. We, we might believe the gospel in relationship to heaven, but we don't believe our go- the gospel in relationship to our schedule or our money or our time or our privacy or our leisure or our... We don't believe the gospel there because we think we're something other than what we are. You know, if somebody's your enemy, the gospel just simply says, yeah, but remember, 
For when we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Right? You hate somebody's guts, wish they were dead. Well, Ephesians 2 says, you were dead. <laughs> you were dead in your sins and transgressions. You were awful. And, but God, in his great mercy, saved you. You see, the logic from Exodus to Revelation in relationship to hospitality is a logic of empathy. It's a gospel logic of empathy. Do you know who you are? Why should you care about the alien that's being treated like a slave? Answer in Exodus 20, because you were a slave. You, you were one. You know what? You ought to remember exactly what that feels like. And the fact that you, means you've forgotten. You forgot where you were. You forgot what came before. You forgot your real state. You have come to believe that it's fantastic that Jesus saved you, but you weren't really all that bad, weren't really all that lost, weren't really all that much of a stranger to God's true country before you were converted. That's what you really think. Because if you remember that you were a slave— how could you not care about somebody who's a slave? If you were a stranger outside of God's family and you remember that, how could you not include somebody new who's not part of the family? If you knew what it was like to be alienated from your heavenly father, how could you not take in a pregnant 14-year-old whose father has thrown her out of the house because she's pregnant? How could you not? It's impossible. And so Jesus does this great favor to not accompany the commandment with this condemnation threat. He just says, what were you and what are you? And then just go do it. Just go do it. And you can, you're just going to need to trust your heavenly father that he's going to say, that, sweetie, that was plenty. You just have to trust you're justified by faith and that you just need to just go out and do likewise. Just got to get out there and be a son or a daughter of your heavenly father who, who throws the sun and the rain on bad people too. And the, the great promise of Jesus on this is always if you die on this hill, you're going to live. You're going to lose your schedule. You're going to get your heart. That's what's going to happen. And so it's, prof it's profoundly gracious. All we have to do is go about the business of loving people and forget about whether or not we're accomplishing enough religious duty to justify us before God. The justification is done, and if we just know who we are, we can just do it. Whether we're a four foot nine, 60 year old who's trying to get himself killed in East India, God help him. Or whether there's a visitor sitting next to you who's not looking for another smile, but they're looking for somebody to shake their hand and take an interest in their life and invite them to lunch and to actually care about them. Because the reverse is also true. The people who are far away if we are sons of our Father in heaven, through that identity, they may see what we are and become themselves 
sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. God, um, we pray this morning that you would not let us treat hospitality tritely and not let us um, love those just who love us or who are already in our group or people or community. Father, we pray that you would make us the people who would not be able to go away from this issue of loving the outsider, the stranger, the lost, the poor, the broken, so that we could really become transformed into your image as sons and daughters of you, resembling you in all ways. So we're going to do a dunking. And um, uh, Jim actually sent me a paragraph on... Yes, Jim, Jim, I don't know where where I get rich from. That's crazy. Um, Jim sent me a paragraph about the hospitality of the Poppy family towards him and how that was integral in his conversion. But I'm going to let him come up and give his testimony. Why don't you come, Jim? And um, he will share all by himself. Good morning. Um, my name is Jim, but I am rich with the Lord, so thanks for that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> today I'd like to tell you a couple of stories. Um, the first story relates to my upbringing, which did include the church. As a child, I went to Sunday school and church, and as a teen, I joined our church youth group. I attended confirmation classes. I served as an acolyte and an usher on a regular basis. I participated in all of these ways. However, I did not take God seriously. I did not worship him. There was no true devotion to Jesus or his teachings. Through my high school years, church felt like something I was supposed to attend and not a place I wanted to be. I certainly didn't think about God or worship him outside of that one hour on Sunday morning or Saturday night when I was an usher. So in college, I didn't pay any attention to God. Instead, I was committed to unholy influences, relationships with friends, and a life without him. I got married in my early 20s, and I thought I was happy. That feeling didn't last. In my late 20s, I knew my marriage was failing, and it was a mistake, and I didn't want to admit it. In my early 30s, I got divorced, and around that time, I began to question God's existence. And looking back, I know that God was with me throughout all these periods of my life, and I'm sure he was calling to me, but my heart was closed, and I wasn't listening. My second story began when a Christian walked into my dance class and became my dance partner. And usually this isn't a place where you find God, but as we all know, God works in unexpected and wonderful ways. 
And so when God called to me in this unusual but wonderful way, I opened my heart, I opened my mind to him, and I listened. And the more I listened, the more I began to find truth and understanding. And I started to read the Bible for the first time. And I'm amazed by the gospel and the teachings of Jesus. And yet, I still struggled with the question of why I wanted to be a Christian. Were my actions truly for God? And was I doing this for the right reasons? So I prayed regularly, and one day when I was questioning the purity of my own intentions, I felt a peacefulness rise up within me, and I realized that my old life, my non-Christian life, that life was a lie. In that life, I was lost, I was lonely, I was without purpose or direction, I was trying to fit in where I didn't belong, constantly searching for something more. And that's something I would never find without God. So today, I can tell you that my first story, which, is my life, which was my life without God, has ended. And we can completely close the book on that story. My new story is just beginning. It's the story of my life with God and a desire to be open, honest, true, and trustworthy. It's a journey devoted to spiritual growth and following Jesus as a student and a disciple. And I don't completely know God's plan for me, but my heart and mind are open and my trust is with him. I've let go of any thought that I can control my own life, and I'm ready to live with God and through his grace. And the most incredible thing and the greatest thing about this story is that it will never, ever end. Thank you, and God bless. Jeff, aren't you come?